everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. I'm Mara Chwastik. I'm Wayne Gladstone. And this is Sticks and Stones. The show where words can never hurt you. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. I guess today is podcast day, uh, and that is some sort of made-up thing, but incredibly appropriate because we have one of the most exciting podcasts that we've uh, yet had the honor of doing. Um, Our guest tonight is an acclaimed author of six novels, including Garden State and The Ice Storm, and his newest novel, Hotels of North America, will be out in November. Rick Moody, thank you so much for joining us. We we are absolutely thrilled to have you on our show. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. <laughs> and joining so, us all the way from from the west coast here, staring at the ocean. That's wonderful. Yeah, he's got the best the best point of view, uh, I guess, literally and figuratively, of this podcast. But we have so much <laughs> to talk about, and um, so I. You know, I don't know why on talk shows they always say, well, I know you're here to talk about something, but we'll get to that. Now, I want to get right to Hotels of uh, North America because uh, I read it, I finished reading it literally today, uh, and it, I, just, I just loved it. And um, what struck me, well, I didn't know what to expect because uh, it's an unusual book, right? Format, uh, structurally, it's basically the story, I guess, and you tell me if there's a better synopsis of... Um, Maybe the life and love of a online hotel critic, as delivered by a, a compendium of his online hotel reviews. Um, so, totally how accurate? Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna ask uh, you to describe it yourself, but Maura was afraid that it would then look like maybe I hadn't read it and it was just a cheap parlor <laughs> trick. It's true. It's true. For the record, I have also read it and also loved it. So, you know, just to make that clear, I wasn't I wasn't throwing that at Wayne so that he could do it, so that I didnn't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the first idea, which is, um, was there ever a point? uh, As I mentioned, you know, there's an there's an introduction by I guess the president of like a hotel society, and an afterward by Rick. Moody, but the majority of the book is a collection of online hotel reviews. And I'm wondering, was there ever a point in the process of writing the book where you worried that that format, that structure, would be too inhibiting to deliver an arc of a conventional story? I mean, every day I felt that way. I mean, the the very premise of it is, you know, non-literary. It's exactly what you should not make a book out of. And right. To me, that, that was the attraction. Like, I could see people saying, wow, hotel reviews. No way am I going to read that book. And And I just thought, you know, that's the exciting part is to try to figure out some um, way to create narrative arc out of completely the wrong material. You know, the truth is I was writing a 
a more conventional book. In fact, I had sort of set myself finally the task of trying to write a, you know, great American novel thing. I had come up with this, what I thought was extremely literary idea. And, uh, and I was working away on it and I wrote like 225 pages and I woke up one day and I thought, I just don't, I just don't care about this way of making novels anymore. And it doesn't, it doesn't tell the truth to me about what it's like now out there, what people are into, what they're thinking about. And, uh, I happened at that time to be staying in a really horrible hotel in Bergen, Norway with my wife. Like, just wow. the worst. Like, if you could come up with one of those horrible, like, hostile-like uh, European hotels where, like, they had a throbbing house music rave in their despondent football TV pub every Friday and Saturday that was at, like, 130 decibels and you could hear it throughout the entire hotel like the hotel was so bad that that we were being driven quickly insane and in the middle of this i got this idea like hey maybe i should try to make a book out of my horrible hotel experiences so so you just abandoned the after over 200 pages in you abandoned the other novel or you reworked it into this no, totally abandoned it. It's sitting Wow, that's amazing. You know, because this book, I tell you, aside, I didn't know what to expect because just before I read it, I read, you know, like the book jacket or the, or I guess I didn't have a book jacket. What did I read? I knew I knew it had, well, I guess maybe I just you read, read the, the blurb uh, online. I guess I, I read the blurb or maybe I just read the introduction. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm about to read a series of hotel reviews. Um, and so I was like, okay, what, what do I expect? And the one thing I did not expect was how much humor there is in the book. I mean, it's a very funny book. And um, I was wondering, I mean, in the broadest sense, it's a personal story and it's a human story. So sometimes when you say the word satire, it conveys like a a cold kind of a book, an intellectual book and not a feeling book. And I wouldn't mean to imply that. But in in its way, to me, it almost satirizes internet culture. Um, Indirectly, was that just an indirect effect for you, or you think I'm way off, or was that intentional, or what are your thoughts there? <laughs> I mean, I think what you're saying about satire is is um, really a sophisticated observation, Wayne, and and I agree. I think you know, in book culture, comic writing is second class, and satire is the worst of co- of comic writing for the kind of diehard earnest realists in the right. readership, you know, they just don't dig that kind of thing. Although I personally very much dig that kind of thing. And, you yeah. know, it's what's those kind of writers yeah. like Confederacy of Dunces I love. And I, you know, <clears throat> I grew up like being a very keen reader of uh, James Thurber and Stanley Elkin. And so comic writing to me is, you know, something that I, that I love and aspire to. And, you know, you, wow, a really loud bird just went by. Since you're, a, since you're a, a person who's very funny, you're exactly the kind of writer that I always have felt like, wow, people who are really natively funny have something that I don't have, you know, like great timing and, you know, they understand how jokes work and stuff. I don't have any of that, but I just love those books, you know. 
Well, first of all, that was very nice of, of you to say. But second of all, I can't let you keep talking when you write a book this funny and say you don't have any of the natural uh, gifts of comedy because for me, the thing that drove the humor of this is also – it was all interrelated. The thing that drove the humor is the same thing that allowed you to break – um, the confines of the structure, which is this is a book of hotel reviews, but the hotel review is not important to him at all. It's just an excuse yeah. for him to talk about himself, which, yeah. which A, allows you to tell a story within the confines of this structure, and B, he's so funny because he presumes that his personal experience no matter how painfully specific, speaks for all of humanity. And I think that to me was the, the, the satire because that isn't that really the nature of the online reviewer. Something hits them a very specific way and they make a grand pronouncement for what this thing is. Yeah, uh, I mean, like all those, those trolls on Reddit and stuff were all like lathered up about something or other and they want you to feel their outrage. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't presume to be to be an expert on all that stuff, but you know, as a person who's been reviewed online and and uh, you know over the course of my writing career and so on, I've read a fair amount of this stuff, and now I've read hotel reviews, you know, because reading hotel reviews on Yelp was was a sort of important source for this this project, you know, and and it is true that. Everybody seems to be writing about something like, oh, I'm going to review this Jonathan Franzen novel or whatever, but really a great majority of the time they're talking about themselves. So, yes, right. it, it was meant to suggest that. Well, that's, that to me is the – well, it's not the only glue because, like I said, and, and as you acknowledged, you tell someone something's a satire and they just kind of roll their eyes. It's a very human uh, uh, story and the, the – I don't want to, I don't want to ruin anything for the people, but the the early on the book, the um, I got very touched just to see that the Plaza Suite, what's it, I'm like yeah. the Eloise Hotel, the mm -hmm. yeah, the New York Hotel Plaza, to see that that got a positive review. I mean, I just got choked up by the four, four star rating because there weren't a lot of positive reviews at that point in the book, and it's kind yeah. of a childhood memory. And clearly, what yeah. he's reviewing is a childhood memory. Um, I have to, I'm going to turn it to, I'm turning to, yeah, go ahead, Mar. Sorry. Love what, uh, I think that for me was such a wonderful point of humor in each, mo in each review, which I want to call chapters, but, um, because you have these, these personal stories that your narrator is taking you through punctuated with a very straightforward one out of five stars two out of five stars, which is just a jarringly humorous moment regardless. Yes. So you, you've got that at the end of every chapter, and that was uh, was always entertaining to me. And I love that you mentioned um, Confederacy of Dunces, uh, because as I was reading this, the first things that I was thinking, and it, it tapered off as I kept reading to some extent, but when I was 20, 30 pages in, I was I felt such a draw to uh, to thinking of Ignatius J. Riley as I'm reading this protagonist because there was that sort of similar quality to me of someone who was pompous and a bit out of touch 
with uh, with what others thought of them and and with how they were presenting themselves to the world. Um, and that was very very clear to me. Um, it's true. She's not just making this up like the kid in class who goes like, "Oh, I meant to say so and so." She she said to me, "Hey, it reminds me a little bit." She's like, "What do you, you know?" She, uh, when we were both around thirty pages in, Shmar was like, "What do you think of the protagonist?" And I'm like, "Well, so far, I don't I don't really, you know, think he's the greatest guy, but I I need I need more proof." And she's like, "Yeah, I mean, you know, me either reminds me of uh, the Confederate Dunces guy, and I I don't remember that name ever, so glad Mara said it so she can be the smart one." But uh, no, did you, we set that all up, and, and now Rick can be like, yeah, no, not at all. I don't think that. <laughs> well, Rick, to that end, what would you say? I don't know if this is fair, but is there one, if you were to name uh, Mr. Morse's, you know, greatest flaw, is there one that you, you or at least there's like there one term or one characteristic? Because as I was reading it, I... I don't usually do this with books, but for this book, for him, I, I don't know. That was the nature of this book. I was like, what's this guy's problem? Is it this or is it this or is it this? Because he's more than one thing. And even my criticisms of him changed throughout the book. And so was there one, if you could say, well, you know, his problem is really X. Could you put your finger on it for you? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I gotta say, you guys, that this is sort of the first live interview I've done on the book, and and uh, I'm really gratified because you guys actually did attention. So I want to thank you for doing that. No, no problem. Um, but uh, you know, one of if I were to tease out the novelistic strategy, such as it was in the course, especially in the course of revising the book, it's that. I wanted him to be, to appear more unpleasant in the first third until roughly he starts talking about his child. And then to use the child and the subsequent chapters to, to overturn your preconception of who he was. So for me, the, the action of the book is if you start the book thinking, gosh, you know, I like a sympathetic character and I don't know if I can stick with this guy because he's such a fuckhead. Then, you know, over the course of the book, hopefully, you know, you you uh, emerge out of that preconception and begin to see that even the, you know, the, the Reddit troll with the loudest haranguing voice has a soft, white underbelly of humanism in there somewhere. You know, so that was a that was very much in the front of my uh, planning as I was trying to make this guy. That said, specifically to answer your question, I think of him as being, you know, a very dangerous, relapsing alcoholic with the, um, you know, deficits of insight into his motivation that go with someone who unfortunately can go, you know, three months dry and then have a horrible um, binge-shrinking episode in which he brings every bit of good that he's put together up to that time. And, and, you know, that's funny you say that because it wasn't until the end that I even um, fully appreciated uh, the nature of, of the alcoholism. It's not what I was focusing on. Um, it was more 
the the uh the other thing you said uh which was the i think the way you put it was a, a deficit of self understanding because um that's the thing right this book is sort of a mystery right it's it's who is reginald edward morse who is the man who wrote these can we tell from what he's written and you would think well what's the mystery if you read someone's diary you know who they are but since he does since he is sort of out of touch to a certain degree despite all his seeming introspection and opinions and how much he wants to pour forth and tell you about himself he's not seemingly the best expert on who he is so you can yeah. sort of read his diary and it's still a mystery yeah yeah so um uh yeah that by the way i never i never hated him but i i didn't particularly like him in the first third and then the plaza softened him for me and then as you said the the, the parenting and another big moment uh that i loved in the book was uh the describing of the dance in the hallway and watching it and wanting to be in that moment. So I mean, there he's. Uh, you're not rooting against him. It's 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 really quite a book. Um, well, you're not. I think, and I would say that um, totally going to cut you off, Wayne. Sorry. Um, no, please. But only do, because please. I want to address that one. Only because thing. you want to make the podcast better. Go ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> because I. You know, having spoken to uh, many many artists of various media. Um, I find that there are some people who really do plan out and then execute whatever it is that they're going to do. And there are other people who, you know, it kind of evolves and, and it changes and maybe it's, it, it ends in a place that was nowhere where they, they what they wanted or where they don't even necessarily see kind of what they've created, except that they know that there's something good there. Um, but from what you said, uh, it seems to me that you are someone who is a, an incredible craftsman, um, because to me, if you if you're, you said that you wanted to have that sort of moment of of taking a reader through and saying, I don't know if I like this guy, I don't know if I want to stick it out in the first third, and and I'd prefer a sympathetic character, you were literally talking about my inner dialogue um, for, for my monologue, I should say. I guess there's only one of me in my head. Well, yeah. but that, <laughs> it depends. It depends on the day. But um, but that is exactly the the path that you took me as a reader on because for for the beginning I I you know the first third I would say I was not sure if I wanted to spend an entire book with this person you know I was already going oh, I don't really like this character necessarily I don't really know and then and then you did expose this humanity to him and you did create a character that became that that to me was then softened and I was more interested in and compelled me forward and I. I began to like him and towards I, I did not in any way end up feeling the same towards that character at the end as I had at the beginning. I absolutely evolved in my opinion of the character, which uh, I also find to be fairly rare. I mean, I think that that's, that's actually a, a pretty difficult task, I think, in general in life, because we when we're met with uh, these immediate opinions that we develop, it's it's hard to overcome that in real life as well as in art. And and uh, so to be able to take someone through and have them evolve their opinion of the character, I I thought that was incredibly masterful. I think you you did it excellently. So yeah, well, sorry, it's to jump in and and glow for a bit there. <laughs> I think there was more than one person in your head for that because there was a lot of verbiage there. There was. I just kept talking and talking, you know. I'm sorry. I don't want to let Rick 
talking. Rick, so wait, let me ask you. Let me turn that into a question. Rick, 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 so 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 we can all plan things. There's all things we want to do in our books, and we can have aims. How? How? I mean, um, do you have any ways? Um, to know whether or not you've hit those goals? Is it because is there a person that you bounce that off of or do you need six months and then to come back to it and look to see if it resonates correctly? Um, how, how do you know when you've at least satisfied yourself to hit ambitions like that? Those specific well, probably, kinds of turns. Yeah, probably all those things. I mean, the, the interesting thing about how this book was made was that you know, I I have a daughter, a six-year-old daughter, and it's the first novel that I managed to finish since my daughter was born. And, and the reason that that's been harder to do is just, uh, you know, it's four in the morning, I have to change a diaper or whatever. You know, right. you don't have the same um, big, unhindered chunks of time to do novel writing when you've got a kid, you know. So what I, 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 I know. thought... <laughs> Yeah, I, I know you know. So what I thought was um, when I abandoned the great American novel that I was trying to write was that I should come up with a form that reflected uh, amounts of time that I actually had available to me now, which is to say, well, I'll write this thing in 500 to 1,000 word chunks, you know. That's uh-huh. the, the, the whole review thing was basically, you know, a strategy to facilitate what was actually happening in my life. I can't go to Yaddo or McDowell for three months. I can't rent a hotel, you know, in in Oregon and sit here and work on my novel for three months. So I've got to have these smaller morsels of narrative in which to work. And so what I did was I wrote like 275 pages is this really loud crow here now. Shut up. We don't hear it. We don't hear it. And you know, we might have some SJWs listening, so we don't want any crow shaming. We don't yeah, want right. to no, hear the end of no that. No crow shaming. Anyway, I like so I wrote like I wrote like um two hundred and seventy five pages of hotel reviews and then the revision process was about saying I don't need two hundred and seventy five, like this book will become uh, incredibly stultifying if it's too long. And so yeah. really it was about taking out 50 pages and being willing to do the cutting that was necessary to make that happen. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I don't want to talk about me, but my first book was, you know, in, in the found journal form and time being uh, of the essence for me as well. That That journal form was really like a time constraint as well. It allowed me yeah. to sort of write a first uh, novel. Um, we have two games to play tonight. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to read one pet, like one paragraph from the book that cracked me up, but let's, let's jump to the, uh, the first of our two games and maybe we'll come back to the paragraph. Then maybe we'll talk about other things. Then we'll play another game and then we'll tie up the show. Just for those of you in the audience who are anal retentive and need a roadmap for the next 36 minutes. So maybe Mara, take it away. Game one. Thank you. I'm very anal retentive. Um, the first game is called Stick Stone or Story. Um, and for this game, I'm going to read three little anecdotes. Uh, one of these anecdotes is about me. I'm Mara Chua Stick, so that's Stick. One of the anecdotes is about Wayne, Wayne Gladstone. 
Um, and the third is about a random person who exists somewhere in the world, could be anyone at all. Uh, I've just pulled it off of the wonderful world of the Internet. Um, so it doesn't really matter who it's about, but it is, in fact, a true story. And uh, given your novel, they all will share a, a particular theme, which uh, should be pretty immediately recognizable. Uh, I'll read all the stories, and then at the end, you can guess which one is stick, which one's stone, and which one's story. You ready to play, Rick? Okay, I got it. Okay, yep. all right. You can do this. <laughs> all right. The first. This person was traveling and was planning to spend a few nights in Peru on a limited budget. Uh, was traveling with a few other people, and they booked a room that seemed relatively inexpensive, but was located still in the middle of the small town that they wanted to visit. When they checked in, they found that their room was, was really more like a cubicle, and they felt immediately uncomfortable touching anything, including the walls, which were entirely mirrored. And as it turns out, they had booked themselves into a brothel. The room was meant to be only hourly. Room service was available, but most likely not the kind you'd want. That's our first. Our second anecdote. While in a small port city in Croatia, and speaking no Croatian, this person saw a flyer for what seemed to be a small inn. But when this person and the travel companion arrived at the door, it seemed to only be a simple house. They turned to leave, but the old woman who answered grabbed them and led them to a plain room and began unpacking their bags for them. Uh, when the guests then went to go sightseeing later that afternoon, the owner came hobble running out and decided in broken English they were not dressed properly and brought them hats and sweaters and ponchos and insisted they put them on. They did, and as they turned to leave, the guests saw the woman's teenage son casually entering their room. They slept that night, the one night they were there, in shifts and on guard. And the third, upon arriving at a hotel in the south, this person was told the room wasn't ready as it was still being cleaned. After waiting, then, for the room presumably to be cleaned and checking in, this person noticed a smell in the room and began to investigate. Ultimately, and unfortunately, this person traced the odor to the bathroom. It seemed, looking around, that everything was in order, but after bending over, this person discovered a large amount of fecal matter smeared all along the underside of the toilet bowl. Those are your three stories. You have a brothel in Peru, an old lady's house in Croatia, and a poop-stained hotel room in the south. Would you like to take a guess as to which one is stick, which one's stone, and which one's story? Wait, so stick is Mara, stick. and Mara, stone yeah. is Wayne, and yep. story is person Anyone, on doesn't matter. Yeah, you don't have to guess who that happened to. You just need to guess it's not Mara or me. For, for bonus credit, if you can guess the any person in the world that it belongs to, you would get extra credit. But to this point, no one has ever gotten the extra credit <laughs> on Stickstone Story. So two or three people have correctly sized up all three anecdotes. I mean, my gut instinct, just as I was hearing them, was that they were presented in the actual order, which is to say that number one was Mora, number two was Wayne, and number thir- three was the Internet. All right. That's what you're, you're going with? Yeah, I'm just going to go with my gut instinct because if it was a television game show, I would I would be honor bound to do that. <laughs> okay, well that's true. You would be. Uh, however, in this case, I'm afraid your gut has not served you. Your gut should stick with uh, telling you when you've got the novel correct because it does that very well. This not quite as well. Um, the first 
uh, was, in fact, the story. The second Croatia, uh, which you guessed, Wayne, was me. And the third, uh, the poop, was, in fact, Wayne. It was a La Quenta in uh, Virginia. And uh, I laughed when I got to La Quenta in your novel because, yeah, that was horrifying. Like, the place looked like it had really been cleaned. In fact, it had. Everything that had been cleaned was super clean. Everything was sparkled except for, you know, a part they didn't clean at all, which was horrifying. So, wait, Mara, you were in the – not the brothel, but where were you? I was in some old lady's house in Croatia in Dubrovnik, okay. which is a walled old city in Croatia. And then when and, she gave you a sweater and then her children entered your room? <laughs> yeah, she had this, like, older son. Okay. I mean, he was, like, in, he was maybe 20 or so, but we, like, we kind of watched him go in our room. We just didn't know what to do. So. Yeah. The, the uh, hint there, Rick, is that I'm very boring and have gone nowhere, and more has been all over the world. So if you'd known me better, it would have been very easy to know that I was the only domestic hotel story. Uh, <laughs> was, the, was the Peru thing anyone famous, or just you found... Well, it's supposedly famous, but I actually have never heard of him. He is a British actor and comedian named Hugh Dennis. Anybody? Anybody? I, no? I, I don't know who Hugh Dennis is. <laughs> I don't know who Rick? Or, uh, okay. Um, all right. Let's move on. Uh, yeah, I don't want you to feel bad. Many people have, have – uh, I just Googled him. I have no idea who he is. Um, uh, many people have, have fallen to Stick Stone Story. I'm sure you'll do better in our next game later in the show, which is all David Bowie-based, just to give you a heads up. But um, like start Googling now. Let's um, – well, you know what? I, I just want to read – let me just read this one paragraph. I don't want to embarrass you, but it's one paragraph, and this is maybe where I left hardest in the book, although that's setting you up because comedians, right, never say that this guy is so funny and this is such a funny joke because then it sets you up. But but I had I had noticed this is page fifty two. I'd noticed before page fifty two, this guy kinda like gives examples like they're universal and they're not really that universal. They're very specific to him. And so I started laughing out loud when I read this. My favorite keys are the ones in Europe that are attached to little round baubles of lead so that you will not wish to carry the thing around with you. When you depart the pre- premises, you are expected to give it to and I'm on board. You were expected to give it to the philosophy student who is at the front desk overnight. Her hair is blonde and straight. Her lips are pursed. Her English is workmanlike. She has tiny breasts, and she doesn't want to talk to you. She wants to read Heidegger. So you give her keys. You give her the keys so you won't be tempted to carry the thing around and have it with you when you are set upon by a small footbridge and deprived of your credit cards and all your cash. As you walk across the bridge with your girlfriend, soon to be wife, on this summer morning some months after you met in the wintry midwest of America. I'll just stop there because um just something about like the use of second person and i know you could just say as well it's just the way he speaks in an infected way affected way and he's talking about his own life of course he is but with this character who i find is not fully immersed in humanity and kind of sits outside of humanity and tries to figure ways to deal with it i i really found that like literally laugh out loud funny because it's a completely personal experience told as a universal truth. And I can't think of any th- better way to satirize uh, someone positive of their online reviews than that. Um, can I ask you, here's the question. Did you mean for that to be as funny as I thought it was? <laughs> well, I mean, I hope it's all funny to some extent. I, I, I certainly think that passage is funny. And then you stopped because if you went on, you were going to have to read the Romanian language section of the book. Yeah. Which I knew you would not be able to do. 
But I think, you know, I'm the only person I know who's deliberately put Romanian into his book, and I feel that that's funny, too. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a well, uh, sense of humor. Well, I was going to say, yes. But you know what? This book... This book, and this is the last thing I'll say for your book because uh, we've spent now half an hour praising it, and uh, people will start to doubt the sincerity. But basically, uh, and not to not to not to pump myself up by association, but this book does everything that I aim to do, and everything that I like, which is it has humor, moments of heightened prose, and deviant sexuality. <laughs> Those are like my three touchstones that I personally ascribe to. So for everyone listening, Hotels of North America, the new novel from Rick Moody, and available in November? In That's November. It? In November. Pre-order now. It's very so, exciting. I mean, we only have like a, a few weeks here left to rub it in everyone's face that we, we've read it. Before they oh, yeah, that's true. And if you want to come over tomorrow or me and, like, touch us because we've read it before you and peel your babies, you know, we can do that. Um, so so I, I'm going to switch topic here unless, Mara, did you want to jump in with a question right now because I've been a pig about this, or should I no, go to the no, next? No, it's fine. I, it's, it's, it's lovely. You, you go right ahead. Okay, so um, then I can make fun of you later if I let you keep talking. I'm gonna right. right. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question which is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but is not a backhanded compliment. It's a real question. So the first thing I ever read by you probably was the short story that you got a lot of uh, attention for called uh, Boys. And I know I did some research, and I, I understand that that came from a, a free writing, and I heard you talk about it and even watched a video of you reading it on, on YouTube. But I'm just going to read the first two sentences as an entry to my question. Boys enter the house. Boys enter the house. Boys, and with them, the ideas of boys, ideas, leaden, reductive, inflexible, enter the house. Boys, two of them, wound into hospital packaging. Boys with infant patent baldness slung in the... I'll just stop there. Here's the question. I love that. If it wasn't clear, I love it. But when you write something that is really good, do you ask yourself, ooh, this is either great or the worst thing I've ever written? (laughs) (laughs) My question is, are your best moments the ones that are scariest to you because you're not, you think they could possibly be your worst ones? You know, that's so funny because I was reading yesterday, I was reading quotations by um, Don Powell. Do you know who Don Powell is? She's no. a novelist in the 30s who was sort of famous for being, a, a, you know, a never made it during her lifetime writer who then got rediscovered later. She's sort of a satirical novelist. Wayne, you should read A Time to Be Born by Don Powell. It's a really funny, amazing novel from the 30s. But anyway, she said, um, I was reading quotations by her, and she said at one point um, uh, something like, I'm paraphrasing, and this is not doing justice to the witty way in which she said it, but she said something like, uh, you know, if you want to be great, you always have to worry about going overboard. And right. and that's how I feel about myself. Like, I'm, I, I'm not interested unless there's a way in which I'm trying to go overboard. 
And that was why I gave up trying to write that great American novel because I was, I just thought like, hey, I should try and write one of these really good books like, uh, you know, certain writers that I knew in my 20s made a million dollars by writing and then maybe I can have a million dollars. But that just doesn't work because it didn't involve the same tilting at ideas and strategies that, that would make many readers a little worried about whether I was going overboard. So when I wrote Boys, I knew that most people would not want to read a short story that was made entirely of repetitions of the sentence Boys Enter the House. But the trick would be to do that, to write that story, and make it actually have a narrative and be moving at the same time. If I could do all those things, I will have gone overboard because it's repetition. It's going to drive some people crazy. But it could also have the things that we really want stories to have, you know, a beginning, right. middle, and end, and actual human pathos, maybe a little moment of epiphany. So I know that some people think these ideas are 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 too much, you know, and a whole book of hotel reviews, maybe it's a little bit too much. But at the same time, I feel most excited myself if right. there's something like that that I'm trying to do and make it palatable at the same time. And is that – you see, uh, let, let, me, let me try to, to only talk about myself for one sentence and then, so I can jump to you for two. Um, it's funny because what appealed to me – uh, as a boy, were like the biggest movies possible and the biggest books, 1984 and Brazil and David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust, all these huge things. But when I was in college and trying to write, I thought I sh- should be a real writer and write like Raymond Carver, like slice of life stories where like a trucker like orders a grilled cheese at 3 a.m. and then sees a waitress and is a little sad. And that's what I wrote for like 10 years until I said, that's not even what I like. I don't even want to do that. I like big, big stories. Um, did you ever go through a thing like that where you felt like to be – I think you did just based on what you're saying. Like you feel part of you that you should write in a certain way. But it just doesn't work. It, it, it. I mean, you never make good books that way. You make shitty books that way. You make imitative books that way. I, you know, I was in grad school at that period, like when Cathedral came out, and Raymond Carver was like everybody was in some kind of collective religious fervor about Raymond Carver. And yeah, I mean, one, it would be stupid for me to write that because I was never a truck driver and I never, you know, lived in the Pacific Northwest and. You know, I don't have it, and I wasn't. I came from the wrong demographic sector to write that work. But you know, but the truth is, you have to write about what you're really excited by, or else you wind up making, you know, imitative, bland, kind of emotionally destitute work. Right? You can see, you can see it everywhere. You can go out tomorrow, go to Barnes and Noble, and buy five books by people who thought they should make the book that way because. To um, ship more units, you know, but it just doesn't work. The thing that makes us excited is when somebody's using the language to get close to what makes life, you know, thrilling to them, whether it's, you know, hotel reviews or, you know, whatever, like a science fiction book about, you know, some weird planet series out there somewhere, you know, whatever it is, swords and sorcery. If you actually care about it, 
then your job is to try to transmit that passion to the audience. Oh, all right. Yes. I mean, I, it took me, it took me, I wasn't into my, I agree with you, but I wasn't until I was in my 30s that I saw it that way. All of my 20s, I, for some reason, thought that that was not the sign of great work, even though the things I thought were great were exactly what you just said. Uh, Mar, I'm going to jump to game what two you, unless you want to. Well, I was only going to say, you know, we, we always do our little uh, pre-interview and, um, and we ask similar questions of everyone we have on, one of which being what is either the best or worst piece of advice you've ever received. Um, and what you just said seemed to come from uh, from what you responded yeah. with that from, from what your dad had told you, um, which I'll let you share if you'd like to share. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, what my dad said to me was, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you work hard at it and really believe in it. And, you know, it's incredible because my dad was in, finance, you know, and so there was no reason why uh, why he would want me to go into novel writing. Like, it just was not a great career path based on what he did, you know, and his dad was a used car salesman. So, you know, it's not like there were novelists in the family before me, but, you know, he was smart enough to realize, he is smart enough to realize that you know, you can't make a career out of trying to do stuff, you know, if you don't care about it. It's just not a way to pursue life. So he just said to me, you want to be a writer, be a writer, but you have to really work your ass off at it and you have to believe in what you're doing. I mean, it seems so obvious, but not obvious when your son is going into the arts, maybe. Right. Well, all right. So this is, you know, it's funny. It's because uh, some, some shows... The best part of the show is is the games because they're they're goofy. But um, I'm having so much fun talking about the artistic process that the games are actually pissing me off. But you know, when you have three to four million loyal viewers like we do, you just have to stick to giving the people what they want, Rick. So so our legion of fans demand Stickstone Story and this other game called Highbrow Lowbrow. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, when I said that your book had humor, heightened prose, and deviant sexuality, you might see that that's what I love, the combination of high and low brow. It's my favorite thing in the world. So I pick a theme, and this week's theme is David Bowie in light of uh, – oh, God, we better talk about that before the show runs out – in light of what we'll talk about after we play the game. But um, there's four questions. You only have to answer three Two of them are highbrow questions on the theme. Two are lowbrow questions on the theme. It's up to you, you know, which ones you pick. You only have to get three out of the four. The topic is David Bowie. You choose your first question, highbrow or lowbrow. Hmm. I feel like I'm going to be worse at the lowbrow one, so I should start with them and see how I do. So give me a lowbrow one. Oh, well, that's, you know, this one is very... Uh, this is very unusual for the game because usually these things have a right and a wrong answer. And this question is completely subjective, and I'm going to be the complete arbiter of it. So you're really, <laughs> you're really just putting yourself in my hands. For the first lowbrow question, name the best and worst David Bowie song. There's more than one right answer. Name the best and worst David Bowie song on albums from 1983 to 1987. 
So let's dance tonight. Never let me down. His dark, dark, dark period of commercial success. Tell me the lowest of the low and the shining moment in those three albums. I knew you were going to do this, Wayne. Like, before we did it, I was going to say, don't fucking make me talk about Never Let Me Down, because... <laughs> it doesn't have to be Never Let Me Down. There's more than one right answer. All right. So there's, there's a lot of bad so songs on those three it's albums. Less, it's Let's Dance and... Tonight, Tonight and, and Never Let Me Down are the three albums in question. You just have to tell yeah. me what you think is the worst song of those three and what is the shining best example of the song of those three. And like I said, it's not like it's not like it's a one to one thing. Only if you get it really wrong am I not gonna get, <laughs> am I not gonna give you credit. I mean I can't do I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna punt here, but I'll tell you the best and worst songs on, on Let's Dance. Uh, well that's from, fine. My, yeah, that's fine. From my point of view. I would say uh, China Doll is the best song on Let's Dance, and the worst song on Let's Dance is uh, Modern Love. Well, you know what? I will, I will accept that. Uh, China Girl is a great song. Uh, I would have preferred that you went with uh, Without You, I think is a much worse song. But, but Modern Love is a piece of shit song in, in C major, and uh, you accept it. Let's move on. You're one for one. So now, highbrow or lowbrow? Um. But wait, by the, for my answer, the best song from that period is 1985, Loving the Alien, first song yeah, after Tonight Yeah, Loving the Alien album. is a really good song. And, the, and that song, Blue Jean, is very, very bad, so that would have been the worst song on But you know, it's not a good song, I agree with you, but I think there are other songs on those albums that are even worse. But okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, highbrow or lowbrow? Highbrow. Okay. Name one of the two Bowie albums that Philip Glass based symphonies on. Oh, that's too easy. All right, well, you know. Low brow on. No, no, you've got to get them all, so go <laughs> ahead. That is easy. But you know, the first question in each category is easier than the second question, so go ahead. Too easy. Uh, heroes and Low. Well, you only had to name one, so you, extra oh. credit for you. Okay, so you're two for two. Now I kind of wish I said you were wrong for, for saying modern love. <laughs> for the win, highbrow or lowbrow? Highbrow. In 1982, David Bowie appeared in a BBC production of what Bertolt Brecht play? Wow, this is a hard one. Yeah. Well, you know, for for the fans at home, uh, Rick Moody writes a lot about music. Hopefully we'll have a little time to talk about that before the end of the hour and knows a fuck ton about David Bowie. So I made it hard. Wait, so... Can I just ask a clarification question? Yes, we're looking for the, yes the name of the Bertek Brecht play. Yeah, it's a play, not a musical, correct? <sighs> That's a tough one, and I'm not trying to be cagey because I think it's called a play. But in truth, yes, it does have music in it, in the sense that one of the characters I think writes songs. I've never seen it, but there is music in it, and you could buy the um, soundtrack to it. So maybe in your, it's a, it's almost a it's a dicey point. There are songs uh, in it. I mean, I don't know the answer, so I'm just gonna guess, and I think that I'm wrong, but I'll just guess and say Three Penny Opera. No, no, it is Ball B A A L Protect huh. Bertolt Brecht's Ball. Um, so now you ball. need this to win. Uh, uh, Rick, and uh, I, don't, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want the Thin White Dude to lose the tremendous amount of respect I know he has for you. So, study hard. 
Name the 1983 Graham Chapman movie in which David Bowie appears in cameo opposite Eric Idle while wearing a shark fin. Wayne, you're just like so far beyond me right now. I knew that you were like a such an honest David well, Bowie fan. You know, you're an expert. I mean, you, I'm not trying right. to pr- prove that you're not. These are these are esoteric and unimportant questions. They're not things I'm that gonna, an actual... I'm just, I just want Maura to step in as an impartial observer and, and tell me whether she believes this is a lowbrow question or a highbrow question. Rick, I would have to go back and say that I like modern love. That's where I ended up on the higher <laughs> category. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If it were up to more, you would have none right so far. No, you'd have one right. That's, that's the extent that I'm I'm there. So, yeah, beyond that... This is um, a, so it's a semi-Python movie, right? Because it's Graham Chapman and Eric Idle, and it's Graham Chapman's movie, and it's 1983, and Bowie's in one scene, and it's just basically a gay joke, and Eric Idle, shall I wait for you in the plummet room, sir? And Eric Idle's like, yeah, yeah. That was the that's the one line he has. He wasn't even supposed to be in the movie. He was in the beach when they were filming, so they threw him in it. And he's just a cabin boy wearing a shark. It's got a nautical theme. It's got a pirate theme. Graham Chapman. I mean, Matt. of course, I know a ton about uh, Monty Python, but I just don't know this movie. I'm afraid. It, well, it's a bad movie. It's it's, it's I, I feel the same. I mean, I, I feel like it's, I... it's yellow beard. It's yellow beard. So you got two out of four. Yeah, it's it's a bad. It's it's Graham Chapman's like only project that was like. Because Graham Chapman, the, j- the joke with him was that he was the laziest one in the group, and he just never wrote. And John che- John Cleese like wrote ninety percent of all the 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 uh, skits he wrote with Graham Chapman, but allegedly like yeah. he'd come in at the last second and have the the most brilliant joke that would make the whole thing. This thing he wrote by himself, and it's it's not that great. Huh. Anyway, look, don't feel bad. Two out of four, but you you got bonus points by giving me an extra back. Philip Glass. So with an asterisk, you kind of won the highbrow lowbrow. <laughs> Let's move yeah. on to writing about music in our in our remaining time. Um, he, Mara and I were having we're discussing you um, behind your back as we're wont to do, and I was we're talking about the fact that when you write about music and you do a lot about writing music for for the rumpus, um, it's you know you write about music the way literally no one else online or anywhere writes about music. It's incredibly um, involved. It's it's sophisticated. It's at a very high level. And it's for people who really love music and can read and aren't looking for something to read on the toilet, which is rare for the internet. They're not reading on... You wouldn't want to read what you write on the phone. And I said to Mara, you know, it's weird. Probably Rick's new novel is more accessible to more people than his writing on music, which appears on the internet. Yeah. I no, but would you agree with that? Right. Or w- yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, I've worked my... You know, the thing is, I don't know if I was corresponding with you last year when I was trying to write for Salon, but for a little while I wrote I wrote music columns for Salon. I, I kind of mothballed the rumpus for like six months, and I wrote for Salon. And while I was doing that, I tried to write about music that, you know, was more accessible and better known to people. And, you know, so I did a Bob Mould piece. I did a Ian McClagan piece. I did, a, you know, a, a, a couple more things like that that people kind of had heard some of this music. And 
And then I became so miserable and disenchanted with doing it that I quit Salon. I mean, they didn't ask me to go or anything. I just was like, I need to be able to write about, you know, indie rock that only sells 100 copies. That That's I'm right. not even sure if it's really rock or not, you know. That's right. And and it's just, I just only do it. I only write about music if I, if I love what I'm writing about. You know, but it's not just yet. Yeah, but that's half of it, right? I mean, half of yeah. it is that you're not right with your subject matter. The other half is the complexity and the depth in which you. It's not like it. You know, even good Rolling Stone, it doesn't read like good 1970s Rolling Stone. This is you need to like words and language. You write about music like a writer, not like a music journalist. Not to say there aren't good music journalists, but you do that deliberately, right? And I guess you must feel. This is what the internet is. For whatever number of people there are who like this and can appreciate this, I'm writing it for them. I mean, that's the only way I can do it. it, it it's it's the same argument that I was making about about writing novels. Like, if you can't do it because of the love for doing it, you're just not gonna. There, you won't have the linguistic chops to be able to make it fly. And I know, you know, that you know your way around. Uh, a pop song and how they work and, you know, you're a musician too, so you know about this stuff and you yourself, when you write about music, do it in the same way in the sense that you're writing about music that you really give a shit about in a way that, that you know, is apparent to the readership and that's what's exciting, you know, that's why I do it. Why not? Yeah, well, let, let's talk about... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it, it, I, that was just incredibly rude of me. I got I got anxious because I I thought you were going to stop and I was going to talk about the David Bowie piece you wrote. <laughs> but I got too excited. I'm sorry. Did you want? Did you no, want to I mean, finish that? I literally got too that excited. I think you're doing it the same way I'm doing it. Well, just that that when I do it, it sounds like me, and when you do it, it sounds like you. You know. Well, I mean, you, you listen. You you wrote a piece on David Bowie the next day which I read multiple times. And I can tell you, the number of times I've read a music piece multiple times in my life is one. Um, and it was, it, was, it was that piece on the next day. First question, is next day, even though it got good reviews, horribly underrated, and isn't it one of the best things he's ever done? Yes or no? I mean, I love next day. I'm so excited to see what he's going to do next, you know? Right. Okay. I put it in the top five with no apologies. Not like not on a curve. Top five. Period. Yeah. I put it at no, five. It's a great, great record. It's a great record. So let's. Can you tell that story because this is an amazing story, right? David Bowie, after not releasing an album for years, after recovering from a heart attack, spending more time with family, basically almost secretly, in 2013, drops a tremendous album on the world makes no video well no I think he did do videos but does no press or interviews of any kind except for a limited interaction with you correct correct and could you just tell anyone who's listening what that interaction was and what you did with it well I just I I had occasion to sort of run into his publicist and I wrote to her and I said look I know he's not doing any press but I think we could do this piece, and all he has to do is give me a list of the words that describe what he was thinking about when he made the record. And that'll be the extent of the interaction. That's all he has to do is give me this list. 
So, you know, like two weeks went by, and I assumed there was not a chance in hell that this was ever going to happen. Uh, and then one day, she, the publicist called, and she was like, you know, he really likes the idea of doing this. And we're thinking, you know, maybe we should do it someplace really big. And I said, no, you definitely shouldn't do it someplace really big. You should give it to me to do it the rumpest at the smallest place imaginable because he's trying to be, you know, not out there in the world. He wants to do this in this, like, sort of interesting self-marketing way. And then a couple of days later, suddenly I got this email, and there was the list of words, you know? Yeah, 20 words, but not, not for some everyone understands, not like, a, not a, not 20 words of sentences describing his thoughts on the album. Literally like 20 words, like 20 nouns, or, or yeah. 20, and, you know, words like parasite, or maybe I just made that yeah. up, or like vampire, or <laughs> eternal. I don't, I don't remember the exact words. You probably do better. And how long was the piece you wrote about that? Was it literally, I mean, 14, it was... 14,000, 14,000 words. Yeah, 14,000 words. One week. I wrote 14,000 words in one week. Right, and because I'm because I'm an asshole, uh, as you can kind of tell by the way I cut off fucking Rick Moody mid-sentence, um, like I read it once, but badly, uh, and then I asked Rick a question online that um, if I had just read more carefully, uh, it was already answered. So, so the fact that he's even here tonight is amazing. Um, so, sorry, I don't know if you remember, but that was really embarrassing. And I caught it the second time I read it. So, yeah, you guys should uh, just just Google uh, Rumpus Rick Moody next day. It is an amazing essay, really, about oh, you know one of the greatest people in music history. It gives 20 words, seemingly tangentially related to the best work he's done in 20 years and a uh, leading uh, uh, novelist in, in uh, living novelist writes a 14,000-word essay about it, and you can get it online. And that's just one of the most amazing things uh, about the Internet. So we're uh, coming to the final segment, which Mara always leads off, which is good because poor people at home have just listened to me talk way too much. And it's the Knowledge Roundup, where we all share, starting with Mara, something we've learned during the course of the show. And while Mara expounds on this, Rick, you and I can try to think of what to say. <laughs> Except that every other time I've, I've kind of let my mind wander and been ready and like, okay, well, I know what I'm going to say. And this time I was just kind of thinking like, oh, am I going to be able to get a word in here and, and talk to Rick about 33 and a third or anything? No, no, I'm not. Okay. So I was actually more focused on that and was was much less prepared. But uh, I've, I've learned almost too much uh, tonight. I think the the major takeaway that will definitely stick with me, and I will um, certainly never forget, is that apparently I'm I'm not to like modern love. That's not a good song, and I should stop enjoying it entirely. <laughs> that was very stupid of my part, and I've embarrassed myself uh, apparently on numerous occasions by being happy when I heard it come on. But I will certainly know now for the future that that I should actually be going. <laughs> you know, this is really the worst song on that album. And I will I will sound much better uh, in the future, and I'm, I'm sure <laughs> attract a lot of acclaim for, for my newfound uh, <laughs> I, uh, anger towards it. Yeah. I mean, what do you got? Well, I would agree that, that Modern Love is the worst of the hit singles off that album. 
And, you know, so I, I, I agreed with uh, Rick, and he got credit for that. But, uh, you know, just to answer that question, I would I think I, there's got to be stuff on Never Let Me Down that's got to be worse. The Day In, Day Out is a, just a really rotten song, and as is Never Let Me that's Down. A bad is, I mean, that's a bad record. It's it's his worst record. It really is yeah. his worst record, and uh, um, and I like Tim Guys, Machine. I know everyone likes to so, shit on Tim. So cool now at every party that I go to. I've just taken all of that in. I'm going to regurgitate that as though I've come up with all of this, and I may in fact, you know, I I might just go to memorizing part of uh, of of Rick's online essay and just spout it off as though it's just. You well, if there's one Mara, thing, Mara, Mara, if there's one Mara. thing I learned from junior high school, it's that if you like David Bowie, oh my God, you'll make so many friends. <laughs> I feel that I should apologize for going on at great length about modern love. I I, I apologize. No, no, what? no. It's it's Why a it's a garbage. It's apologize? a garbage. It, it is it is it is it is no, no. pure disposable. Rick, you have to understand. I'm I'm. I own uh, a new day because Wayne said you have to you have to listen to this you have you have to buy this but I'm I've never I don't know much uh, about Bowie and I I've kind of I'm slowly letting it in so uh, you have nothing to apologize for I, I I'm I'm obviously joking but I will be listening a bit closer and uh, and you're not going to stop me from dancing to it it's still going to happen right. <laughs> sadly. Um, she'll put on her red shoes and dance the blues. I learned um, that that the parts I thought were funny in uh, hotels of North America, and there were many of them, were uh, funny um, by design, which is good because you never want to laugh at things that weren't meant to be funny. And uh, I uh, I learned what I also already knew that there was tremendous disdain for satire. <laughs> Among among certain uh, literary types, Rick, what did you learn today? Wait, I just well, want to pause I... for a moment and ask. I'm so sorry, Rick. Now I'm cutting you off because I, Wayne just eventually seeps into my brain. Wait, Wayne, did you just say that what you learned is that you were right all along? Is that really <laughs> what you just said? <laughs> That's what you learned tonight. I just wanted to point that out, Rick. I'm sorry. Please, what did you learn? Oh, I'm just going to say that I never knew about the Graham Chapman movie, and actually I'm going to go watch it because I like all things relating to Monty Python. So. Yeah, it has a, it has a few moments, and Madeline Kahn is in it, and uh, Marty Feldman, but it's it's not well, it's I not say, anyone. We did have one one listener who even acknowledged it correctly. Uh, Tim Talbot uh, knew the question. He was the only one who got it right. Uh, oh, Tim, did he? Tim Talbot. Yeah. Tim Talbot Tim is. Uh, He's a uh, he, he's he's the writer behind that new movie Stanford Prison Experiment and a writer for Chicago Fire and former writer for South Park and a former guest of the show and a very wise man in the matter of Monty Python. Well, it's ten oh three. I had a uh, tremendously wonderful time, Rick. Thank you so much for Hotels of North America. Thank you so much for coming here and talking to us about it. You know, it's really my pleasure. You guys really read the book, and and I gotta say, I'm I'm feeling like uh, maybe the publication will be fun this time. You've made me feel like I didn't fuck it up too bad. So, well, <laughs> Rick, I, I I know I'm a younger classman, but I don't want you to get too encouraged because I still think publishing is horrible. So, oh, it is horrible. <laughs> it is horrible. That's true. Never get your hopes up. <laughs> so I don't want, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to raise your bubble, but, but at no. least as far as two people are concerned, you read a, you wrote a, uh, both moving and, uh, 
entertaining novel that uh, spoke to our times. And it sounds like I'm being facetious, but that, I think, is an actual fair description. So thank you so much for being with us tonight. It is. Thank you. And everyone who's listening, please uh, go out and purchase Hotels in North America immediately. You can get it at rickmoodybooks.com. Go there and order it. You will not regret it. And thank you all so much for listening, and you will hear from us uh, again next week. Good night. Are you still there? I'm here. Yeah, but I I'm, Okay, I'm, so so we're, we may still be recording. I have not heard a uh beep and I'm I so everybody, you know, as we continue I'm <laughs> trying to end this recording. I'm hitting the button repeatedly and nothing it's not is ending happening. the recording. Nothing is happening. Nothing Don't at all. Don't say you're All right. Well, then, you know what? Typically we have a debrief, but on the off chance It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.